Keep your Bibles right where they're at. We've been studying the book of Acts since Jesus came. Uh, it's been, gosh, probably three years. Darn near three years. We only have two chapters left, though. Isn't that crazy? Two chapters left in the book after almost three years of studying it. I, this is like the 105th sermon in the series, and I know we've taken pauses and done a lot of other things, but... And uh, so we're in the home stretch. We're nearing the end of the book. And uh, last week we, we studied Paul's second trial at Caesarea in chapter 26. I think we, we handled the whole chapter, didn't we, last week? Because it just didn't make sense to break it up. And that's not normal for me to teach through an entire chapter or even more than a couple of verses at a time. But it just, you know, sometimes the way the Word of God is written that you need to handle the whole section because that's the way that it's going to make sense. And so we took care of the whole chapter. Uh, we, we really did look at that second trial of Paul there. And uh, after giving his defense speech, which really equated to preaching the gospel, uh, his defense really wasn't a defense at all. It was an offense. He wanted King Agrippa to get saved and everyone in the room. It was pretty spectacular what he did. You ought to go back and read chapter 26, especially the latter part. It's really amazing. But after giving his defense, which was really an offense, uh, Governor Festus and King Agrippa unanimously agreed at the end of the passage that he was innocent of all the charges of the Jews. They're like, this dude, this dude just doesn't have, he hasn't done anything wrong. He hasn't broken any Roman laws. He's not in any kind of trouble or anything. He certainly isn't worthy of death. And they even wanted to set him free in a sense. They'd said this man could be set free because he hasn't done anything wrong. And yet he had appealed to Caesar. And so the paperwork had been sent for Paul to go to Rome to be transferred to appeal to the highest judge in the land, which would be Caesar Nero at the time. So since that paperwork was submitted and that process had begun, they wanted to set him free because he hadn't done anything wrong, but they couldn't because of that paperwork. It's like once you filed that thing, the ball was rolling and you couldn't retract that. And so... That's pretty much what we looked at last week, and of course, a zillion other things. In the next chapter and a half, we're going to look at Paul's incredible journey to Rome, his transfer. And it has to be one of the craziest, most incredible, most dynamic, most insane pieces of Scripture, just because of what this guy went through, just to get across the bay, to get across the Mediterranean, to get to Rome. It's just unbelievable what he went through. And so we're going to begin to look at that incredible journey, and we're going to look at 27, 1 through 26 today, and then we'll pick it back up, uh, Lord willing. We're going to pray real quick, and then we'll begin at verse 1. Father, open our hearts and minds to the truth. Lord, I pray that your truth would be a double-edged sword. It is one, but that it would cut right through who we are, our falseness, our sin, just expose us this morning, Holy Spirit, and not only expose us, but regenerate, illuminate, transform, sanctify, do whatever it is that, that needs to be done in each of our hearts and each of our lives. And may we just marvel at, at you, God, at your word, because this is your word. It's your word to us, and it, it is just marvelous. There's power in the word. And we pray that you would release that power here today, that you would use that power to transform us and conform us to the image of Jesus Christ. And so, may we yield to you, may we, may we submit to you right now, uh, put away with the distractions and cares of this life, our cell phones and Facebook and all the 
stuff and just sit in your presence at your feet. You are our good teacher. Speak to us, and we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, let's pick it up at verse 1, 27, chapter 27, verse 1. Are you there? Okay, good. Let's do this. Begins, and when it was decided that we should sail for Italy, they delivered Paul and some other prisoners to a centurion of the Augustan cohort named Julius. That's where we'll start. Something to notice here is the use of the first person plural pronoun, we, indicates the return of Paul's physician and beloved friend Luke. Luke had traveled with with Paul a number of times. There were times where he was with him. There were times where he wasn't with him. And an interesting little tidbit of fact here is that he had... He has not mentioned in the narrative in the first person form since chapter 21, verse 18, which was right before Paul got arrested in Jerusalem. So that doesn't mean that, that Luke wasn't around or, or in the vicinity of Paul, but it just simply means that he was not by his side during that whole period of time. And that the historical account continued by either extraordinary and miraculous revelation or the testimony of others. That's how, when Luke was there, he wrote what he saw. When he wasn't there, the Holy Spirit revealed to him through others what took place. And that's why, that's how it went down. And so it says we, which means he's with Paul. And and I have to say that must have brought Paul tremendous comfort. I mean, he has experienced insane adversity jail, you know, punishment, uh, abandonment in a sense, and, and here he's got his good buddy, his BFF, back with him. And I think that that just really, really made his day. That he's about to set sail on a voyage which is over a thousand miles away and very dangerous, especially during this time of year, and he's got a compadre to go with him. That's huge. Any one of us would rejoice at that. We wouldn't want to be alone on this thing or just be held by our captives. And so he's with him now. And I think that during those, you know, during the Jerusalem episode and then part of the Caesarean thing with those trials, I think that Luke might have just lived in that vicinity and just stayed close, but not close enough to to say that he was actually with him. But he was on hand here. And then we notice also the verse says, other prisoners. Who were these guys? Probably non-Roman citizens convicted of, of, of crimes, who were being sent to Rome to be killed in the gladiatorial games. That's what some commentators say. These were guys that were basically busted in, in the Caesarean region or somewhere around there, and they were being sent off to Rome to be used for sport. And so imagine their fate. Imagine what they were about to experience. And, uh, and so we, we don't know exactly. These could have been guys that were similar to Paul that, that might have been just being transferred to be tried in the higher courts in Rome. We don't know for sure, but one guy said they were going for gladiatorial games, and I thought that was really interesting. So Paul was transferred with other prisoners. Also notice that it says the Augustan cohort. This is an honorary title given to more than one legion of the Roman army, implying perhaps that they acted as a bodyguard to the emperor or... um, or the governor or an official, as occasion required. So this might not have been a particular cohort of the Roman uh, 
military, but it might have been actually a title, a good, a glorifying sort of title that was given to those um, battalions or those legions that performed really well or had been assigned special duties. And, and it's kind of neat when you think about that, that they chose this cohort to make the journey, or at least this commander from that cohort to make the journey to make sure Paul was safe and secure and to deliver these other prisoners. And so it kind of goes to show um, how important Paul was as a prisoner, that they actually took not just, you know, Jim from Series PD over there to do the job, but they took this guy from the Federal Bureau of Investigation, you know, or whatever. They took this general, if you will, from this extremely high and glorified and, and uh, recognized cohort. So that's who that was. That's what this cohort was. Now, it could be that they, this cohort was stationed in maybe northern Palestine, I guess we would call it today. Uh, and, it, and it seems like they, this Augustan cohort was stationed there, more particularly in the region of Caesarea, at least until the reign of King Agrippa II ended, which ended at the fall of Jerusalem. And so this is a special group. And then we have Centurion Julius, who's basically the leader. He was one of the centurions of the Augustan cohort. The cohort was larger than 100 men, and so, you know, you had basically a centurion per 100. And so he was just one of many of these high-ranking officials to this glorious cohort. And he was there. He was in charge of the prisoners. He wasn't in charge of the boat. He was not in charge of the boat, although I think that he had some say-so. He had some sway. You know, he was a high-ranking military official. But he was in charge of the prisoners. That was his job. He would have been, I don't know if we would call him a bailiff or something like that. Um, kind of when we see movies, we see prisoners on a bus being transferred, and there's usually a guard or two on there. He would have been like that, the prison guard, if you will, that's transferring these prisoners. And so this guy's name was Julius. Reminds me of Orange Julius, that delicious little vanilla-y orange drink that I used to buy for $29.95 when I was a kid. Julius, he was in charge of the prisoners. And he also would have obtained and carried Paul's transfer documents. You could not transfer a prisoner from one uh, district, from one province to another, without the necessary documents. In fact, that's why they had that second trial that we looked at in chapter 26. It was to produce information about Paul to put on those transfer documents because you could not send a prisoner without that information. And since the case turned to nothing and Paul wasn't guilty, I'd like to know what they wrote on those papers. What kind of an explanation did they put on this document that they handed to this commander to deliver to Emperor Nero? What did it say? Here's Paul. He hasn't really done anything, but we'd like for you to try him. Uh, I don't know what, did they fabricate something? Did they just come up with something? Who knows? A very strange thing. But he would have been holding these, these very important documents. Let's look at two and three. And embarking in a ship of Adramidium, is how it's pronounced. Cameron nailed it, Adramidium, which was about to sail to the ports along the coast of Asia, we put to sea, accompanied by Aristarchus, a Macedonian from Thessalonica. The next day we put in at Sidon, is how that's pronounced, Sidon, and Julius treated Paul kindly and gave him leave to go to his friends and be cared for. Interesting. 
Julius, the centurion, chartered a trade ship from Adramidium. Adramidium was an ancient port city in Mysia in the Roman province of Asia. It's up north in that province, right on the Aegean Sea. The ship was either picking up goods to be distributed along the coast of Asia Minor or delivering them, either one. But it was packed and it was taking goods up and down the coast or it was picking them up to be delivered somewhere else. So he books a sailing vessel here from Adramidium. Text says Paul's friend Aristarchus also accompanied him during the voyage. He was one of the guys who had been seized by angry rioters in Ephesus. We read about that way back in chapter 20 or chapter 19, verse 29. You remember how the townspeople drug him and Gaius, his buddy, to the theater. So we have another compadre, companion of Paul, who was in the vicinity at the time, maybe during this trial and all of that, and he asked to be transferred with Paul. I just think it's amazing that Paul is basically a prisoner, but he's enabled or allowed to bring friends with him along the journey. I don't know about you, but that's pretty cool. I don't think that would happen here. If I get pinched for something, I'm going to say, I'd like Mike Boyd to go with me. They're going to be like, you're an idiot. You know, I hope I don't get pinched for something. But, you know, this is really cool. He's got a couple of buddies with him. Luke, his beloved physician and friend, is back with him. And now he's got Aristarchus back with him. This is fantastic. From Caesarea, they set sail and traveled 70 miles north to Sidon. Sidon was a prosperous Roman port city during the first century. Jesus visited Sidon and its sister city Tyre during his ministry. It was there that he healed the Syrophoenician's daughter. When they made port at Sidon, Julius treated Paul kindly and gave him leave. No, that's just insane. This is a prisoner and you let him go off. That's amazing. Kindness towards Paul, and this is an interesting fact, kindness towards Paul is a reoccurring theme in the latter part of the book of Acts. In 24-23, Felix showed Paul kindness by granting him some liberty. Let his friends come and tend to him. In our text, 27-3, Julius showed Paul kindness by granting him leave. And in Acts 28.16, just a little down the road there, the Roman government showed Paul kindness by allowing him, once he got to Rome, by allowing him to stay at his own place with one guard, and he was enabled to, or uh, given the right to have visitors. I just think that's amazing. And here's this guy who's a prisoner, and yet over and over, his captors show him kindness. That's amazing. Why is that? Well, I thought maybe it's because nobody really believed that Paul was guilty of anything, and so they felt compelled to treat him with some kind of dignity and kindness and respect. He was like a prisoner, but he hadn't done anything wrong. I'm not sure that that information was available to everyone, so I don't know if we could say that's why. You know what I think it was? I think it was Paul's godly example. I do. Well, Phil, the gospel's a stumbling block. People hate people that preach the gospel. Yeah, that's true, too. But I, but I think that Paul's godly example, I think that his love for others, I think that his steadfastness, you gotta, you got to know something about Paul. We've studied him in the book of Acts. He's relentless. He doesn't capitulate. He loves Jesus and he serves Jesus, and that's just it. It doesn't matter what happens. And when somebody does that around people, they take notice of it and they say, that guy's legit. I think it had to do with his godly example, his love for others, his steadfastness in the faith. 
I think that's what inspired people around him to show him kindness. They just marveled at this guy. This guy does not have it good. He's headed to Rome. He could die. And yet, look at his attitude. Look at his example. Look at how he loves others. Look at how he sticks to Jesus. As it says in Proverbs 3, 3 to 4, Let not steadfast love and faithfulness forsake you. Bind them around your neck. Write them on the tablet of your heart, so you will find favor and good success in the sight of God and man. I think that's exactly what Paul was doing. It's exactly what he was doing. Steadfast love and faithfulness. He didn't let those things forsake him. And he was an amazing example to those around him. And they were compelled to show him kindness. And I'll tell you what, a little kindness goes a long ways when you're in a situation like this guy was in. He'd been in jail for two years. He hadn't done anything wrong. And you know he was abused. Now, during his leave, and, and this is just spectacular. You know what? Just come back to the boat at 6. Huh? I'd be like, okay. Sounded good. I'm out of here. I'm headed for Judea, you know. I'm headed for Jerusalem. I wouldn't go back there. I'd end up back in jail. Just come back by 6. I mean, he just, it, it's like, okay, you have leave. You can go. And during that leave, what did he do? He went and visited his friends who cared for him. Who the heck are these friends? How does he have friends in Sidon? Uh, that's a Canaanite town. That's a Philistine stronghold. That's a Roman stronghold. Well, the idea here is that his friends were disciples of Jesus Christ. You see, churches were planted in and around Phoenicia, that's that area, that district, after the death of Stephen. We looked at this back in Acts 15.3. Remember back in Acts 15.3 how Paul and Barnabas visited the churches near the end of their first missionary journey? They went through the region of Phoenicia, Sidon, Tyre, all those little towns, those little coastal towns. They went there and, and, and built up and encouraged the saints that lived in those areas that attended those small churches in those areas. Pretty amazing. So what does Paul do? He gets leave. And what does he do? Does he go over to the amusement park and ride a couple of roller coasters? Does he go to Orange Julius? Does he take, you know, kick his feet up on a lawn chair somewhere and enjoy that Mediterranean breeze and that wonderful sunlight and, you know, tone his skin and get tan and he's all about me, you know? No, he goes over to the church. And what did he do there? He was tended to. And let me tell you something. Paul's style was to tend to others. And so not only was he tended to, but he probably popped in. Hey, by the way, I'm being transferred to Rome. I'm an inmate, but I just came over here to pray with you. I came over here to encourage you, and I'd love for you to do the same thing with me. I've got to travel all the way across the Mediterranean Sea. It's darn near winter. It ain't going to be pretty. Pray for me. Who knows what that looked like? Pretty amazing. Look at 4 through 6. And putting out to sea. From there, we sailed under the lee of Cyprus because the winds were against us. And when, that, just, that's just, that just tells you something right there. Maybe we should just along the coast of Cilicia and Pamphylia. We came to Myra in Lycia. There, the centurion found a ship of Alexandria sailing for Italy and put us on board. <clears throat> when they set out of Sidon, the winds shifted against them. And made it difficult for them to move forward. The winds, they had a headwind. They were trying to sail into the wind. Have any of you ever done that? 
It's difficult to walk in high wind or to jog or to even drive. And yet they're trying to maneuver a boat that depends on wind into the wind, which means the sail gets filled backwards and pushes you backwards. This was a nightmare. And what did they do? Because they were headed into, they were sailing into headwinds. The wind wasn't behind them, it was against them. They turned north towards Cyprus and headed for the lee, which was on the, on the side of the island that was sheltered from the powerful winter winds, the Mediterranean winter winds. They sailed past Cilicia and Pamphylia and made port at Myra. Now, we've read about Cilicia and Pamphylia, these two Roman provinces. There's churches that were planted in those places. Paul probably waved at the shore if he could see it. Maybe he thought, I'd like to stop there and encourage those believers too. But they flew right past that and went right to Myra. Apparently, the ship from Adramidium had gone as far as it was going to go. And Julius needed to charter another boat. He located an Alexandrian trade ship headed for Italy and put everyone on board and they set sail. Now look over there at 7 and 8. Verse 7 says, We sailed for a number of days and arrived with difficulty at Snidus. And as the wind did not allow us to go further, we sailed under the lee of Crete off Salmone. Coasting along it with difficulty, we came to a place called Fair Havens. That's the only darn place in there that you can actually pronounce. That sounds like a neighborhood in Modesto. You got Snidus and Snudus and Farfanugan, you know, and all these weird names, and then all of a sudden you've got Fair Havens. What the heck's going on here? Make up your mind, people. These Romans were confused. They coasted along with difficulty. They still had headwinds, and they came to a place called Fair Havens, near which was the city of Lassia. Now, the goal was to sail past the port of Snidus, and, and you've got to envision this picture, this little region. It's, uh, I would say it's probably about halfway up the Aegean Sea on the Asia Minor side, and there's just a ton of little islands and different little breakouts off the thing. And so they're, they're wanting to sail right through all of that stuff and just make their way through that. They're not wanting to go up or down and go around it. They want to go through all these little islands and all of these little breaks and all of this stuff. They wanted to sail straight through past the port of Snidus, which was really like one of the last ports for a while, right through to Syracuse, and then from there north to Italy. Rome didn't have a port of its own. It was a, that borrowed a port that was down south, and so they wanted to sail, you know, all the way over to Syracuse and then up to that port and then make their way by land to Rome. But we're seeing it again. The wind was too powerful, and it forced them to turn south. So they'd gone north, and now they had to go down. They had to go up, and they had to go down. They could not go straight. They could not go forward. And they had to go south and head for the Lee of Crete, which was on the southern side of the island. So it's like they were going like this, and then they had to go like this. They had to go around Crete, because that Crete served as a natural buffer against the winds. And they figured once we get to Crete, maybe we can shoot across. And they found no respite from the wind in the Lee of Crete either. And they decided to head for shore. It's like, man, we cannot do this. You know, they came down to the Lee of Crete, and it was just as windy as every other place. And so they said, well, we're just going to have to go park. 
We're going to have to camp out for a while. The wind is just killing us. And they came to a place called Fair Havens. You know what Fair Havens is translated? You know what it means? It means good harbor. Apparently, this was a good harbor. And what did they do when they got there? They made port. Now look at 9 through 10. Since much, since much time had passed and the voyage was now dangerous because even the fast was already over, Paul advised them, verse 10, saying, Sirs, I, I perceive that the voyage will be with injury and much loss, not only of the cargo and the ship, but also of our lives. Now, bad weather had forced them to remain at Fair Havens for a considerable amount of time. It says it right there, since much time had passed. The crew, though, well, there was terrible weather and the winds did not die down or any of that stuff. While they were camped out there, they stayed there while the weather was doing its thing. The crew began to discuss the idea of venturing back out, trying to find a better harbor or moving on. Paul warned them, said, you know, it's going to be too dangerous to do it. We could lose... We could lose the boat. We could lose our lives. You could lose your cargo. And then you see right there, it says the fast. The fast is a reference to the Day of Atonement, which is in late September. And that's why the fast is there. It's to show us what time of the year it was. It had already passed, which means that it was early or maybe mid-October now. According to, <coughs> pardon me, I've got these terrible allergies. According to ancient historians, navigation on the Mediterranean Sea was safe until September 14th, uncertain until November 11th, and closed from November 11th until March 10th of the next year because of storms, fog, and overcast skies. Now, Paul was concerned because they were in the midst of the uncertain period, not to mention that he could already tell the weather was bad. It was already getting foggy. The winds were terrible. And these guys are sitting here talking about, I think we should go out and, and, and head somewhere else. I think we need, to, you know, we need to go to another place. Maybe we need to continue. Maybe we need to drop some of this cargo so we can get paid. And Paul's like, you guys are stupid. We're in the danger. We're entering into the danger zone. In fact, shipping's about to become closed. And look what happened in 11 and 13. But... The centurion paid more attention to the pilot and the owner of the ship than to what Paul said, right? And because the harbor was not suitable to spend the winter in, the majority decided to put out to sea from there on the chance that somehow they could reach Phoenix, a harbor of Crete, forcing both, or facing, pardon me, facing both southwest and northwest and spend the winter there. 13, now when the south wind blew gently, Supposing that they had obtained their purpose, they weighed anchor and sailed along Crete close to the shore. Uh, what we, first thing we see here is that the pilot and the owner of the ship were obviously more concerned about making progress, making some money, than they were about safety. They wanted to get back out there and make those deliveries and get paid or maybe find a more suitable harbor, which it says there. I'd like to know why Fairhavens, which is a good harbor, wasn't sufficient for a winter stay. I think it was, but I just don't think it met their expectations. Who knows? They wanted to find a more suitable harbor where they could dock for the winter. Unfortunately, Julius and the majority of the crew listened to these guys. They listened to the pilot. They listened to the owner of the boat. 
They were like, well, you know, the centurion's like, that's probably not a bad idea, Paul, but these guys are saying it's going to be okay. They've got experience. They've done this before, so we're going to be cool. And then look what happens here. The south wind began to die down. That was the wind that was pressing against them. That was the headwind. That began to change. Thus, they thought, look, the winds are dying down. We're cool. We can get out there and do this thing. Let's make a break for it. Let's go for it. How unpredictable is wind, though? For one moment, it's blowing in this way, then it stops, then it comes from behind, and then it switches again, And right? But they felt like, okay, well, the south wind that's been killing us this whole time is now decreased. It's dying out. Well, let's make our move. And so they put out to sea again, and they stayed along the coast. And they made a move to go to Phoenix, which was 40 miles west, just up the coast. Its harbor apparently was more suitable, and I think it's true in a sense because it provided greater shelter from the winter winds and pounding surf. It had like a storm breakout, a natural storm breakout, so you could kind of come in this little inlet and, and dock, and so that break stopped those waves and some of that wind. So they, they headed for Phoenix. They thought, that's where we'll camp out and stay till the weather improves, until it's safe to go back out. But when they began to cross the Bay of Masara, something happened. There was this bay called the Bay of Masara, small bay, kind of like Monterey Bay. It's like they wanted to shoot from Monterey Peninsula to Santa Cruz, although that's only about 15 to 20 miles. This was 40 miles. So as soon as they got out in the middle of that bay, something happened. Look at 15 and 19. It says, and when... Oh, no, 14, pardon me, verse 14, go up to 14. Look at verse 14. It says, but soon a tempestuous wind called the northeaster struck down from the land. Oh, this is bad. A northeaster is a, is a storm system which features hurricane-force winds. This is serious. This, this is Katrina. This is hammer time. In 2006, a northeaster struck the east coast of our nation, causing $5 million in damages in nine states. You remember reading about that, seeing those images on the, on the news where the Jersey Shore Pier got hammered and there was, a, there was a roller coaster out in the middle of the ocean? You've seen those pictures? That was a northeaster that did all that damage in the Jersey Shore and everywhere else down the east coast, all the way down as far as Virginia. Five million in damages. Basically took the Jersey Pier out. Just wiped it out. Just the wind and the surf just obliterated it. All the buildings went like this into the water. It was unreal. That was the kind of storm that had swept down off Crete and across the Bay of Nassara and was now hammering this boat big time. The Northeaster was by far, by far, the most feared windstorm of the mariners of antiquity. If they were out to sea and they knew one of those things was coming, they just basically started praying because you were pretty much dead if you got mixed up into one of these things. And think about these boats. They're sailboats, you know. They can't muscle through it with an engine. They have a bunch of guys in the back, you know, you know dog paddling out there trying to propel the boat. 
you know. Ben-Hur, dun, 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 dun. Ramming speed, you know. Nor'easter speed. Ah, you know. I mean, you were in trouble. This was the most feared storm of all, sea storm. Now look at 15 and 19. And when the ship was caught and could not face the wind, we gave way to it and were driven along, running under the lee of a small island called Calda. We managed with difficulty to secure the ship's boat. After hoisting it up, they used supports to undergird the ship. Then, fearing that they would run aground on the Sirtis, they lowered the gear, and thus they were dry, uh, driven along. 18. Since we, since we were violently storm-tossed, they began the next day to jettison the cargo. And on the third day, and on the third day, they threw the ship's tackle overboard with their own hands. Oh, man, this is insane. They started getting hammered by this northeaster. It just started to pepper them, to blast them, to spin them out of control. Now, Luke lists in 15 to 19 six emergency measures made by the crew. Okay? This was, this was we have to do something right now because the ship is not going to hold if we don't. We're in deep trouble. Let's take a look at these six emergency steps they took. Number one, they steered into the wind. Okay? Verse 15. And when the ship was caught and could not face the wind, we gave way to it and were driven along. The first thing they did when this wind hit them was they tried to steer the boat into the wind. The reason why you do this is because of the aerodynamics of the boat. You pull the sails, bring the sails down, because if they're up, you're just going to get blown to, you know, China. And so you pull the sails, and you turn the boat into the wind, hoping to not get blown too far off course. You're going to be moved. You're, the, the wind is going to move the boat, but if you're, in, if you're on the side of the wind, it's either going to tip you or just blow you like that farther away, not to mention you've got all of this going on. And so the first precautionary measure they do is they tried to turn into the wind, but it says we couldn't do it when we gave way, which means the wind. They couldn't get the boat turned. That's how powerful the wind was. They started to make a little progress. Started to make a little progress. They just couldn't do it. Thus, they were blown further and further off target. Number two, they secured the boat or the lifeboat. Okay, verse 16, running under the lee of a small island called Cauda, we managed with difficulty to, to secure the ship's boat. Okay, look, the wind blew them in the direction of the small island. They decided to try to head for its lee, which is the wind-free zone. Okay, and they got about a four-second respite from the wind attack. Just enough time to get the lifeboat out of the water or off the side of the boat where it was going bang, 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 basically drilling a hole in the side of the boat because that thing was just flapping and hammering them. And so they managed to secure this thing and to pull it up. So that's the second thing they did. Number three, they strengthened the ship's hull. Verse 17a, right? After hoisting up the lifeboat, they used supports to undergird the ship. What does that mean? It means that that sea and that wind was hammering that boat so bad it was starting to leak. It was starting to buckle. It was flexing. And these things were thick. And so what they do? They always carried a pallet of planks on a boat, and they started to shore it up and to secure it and to put beams down there in the hull. That way the boat wouldn't implode, basically. So they started to do that. 
Number four, they lowered all the sales, 17B, okay? This shows that they had to raise the sales for a moment to steer into the wind. They lowered all the sales in 17B. Then, fearing that they would run aground on the Sirtis, they lowered the gear, gear sales, and thus they were driven along. Okay, the idea here is drop all the sails and escape! Run for your life! Sail for your life! You know, drop all the sails, let the wind take us, and let it take us out of maybe this particular area or in another direction where it might be safer. So they dropped the sails and they were flying, man. Now, the Northeaster, though, had blown them towards the most dangerous part of the Mediterranean Sea, which was known as the Sirtis. Two bodies of water off the northern coast of Africa, dreaded by ancient mariners. The larger was known as Sirtis Major and the smaller Sirtis Minor. These bodies of water were feared for their quick-shifting sandbars that produced unpredictable shoals and hazardous tides and currents. Paul's ship was being driven by the Northeaster to the Sirtis, to Sirtis Major. Major meaning the worst. And so here they are headed for all the sandbars and all the rocks and the coral and all the craziness. And this is nuts because this is like out in the middle of the sea. It's along the North, uh, the North African coast, but it's, it's still out there several hundred miles. How bizarre would that be to be sailing out in the middle of the ocean and all of a sudden you've got all these sandbars and stuff? Oh, this was the worst possible place you could go. And they're headed to it. So they have to take the next step. Five, they threw the ship's cargo overboard. Why did they do that in verse 18? To lighten the boat. Maybe if we lighten it, we can get steered better by the wind away from the Sirtis, although the wind was blowing them directly to it. Look at what it says. It says, since we were violently storm-tossed, they were getting pelted not just by wind, but by waves and stingy, salty mist. And it was just... Horrible. Since we were violently storm-tossed, they began the next day to jettison the cargo. Man, they just started throwing out the stuff that they were trying to deliver, all that myrrh and, and, the, and the precious fabrics and all the stuff that they had brought, that they had purchased or whatever that they were going to deliver. They started to throw all this stuff overboard. This is a loss. They had no choice. Number six, they threw the ship's tackle overboard, verse 19. And on the third day, okay, it just, they just kept getting hammered day after day after day. They threw the ship's tackle overboard with their own hands. This is, everyone come on deck. I know it's almost impossible to stand and your eyes are getting blown off your face, but grab something and throw it overboard. The ship's tackle, tackle means literally everything that, that ha, does not have to do with sustaining life. Little ropes, you know, madam, you don't need those shoes. Those are my Air Jordans, sorry. I mean, it's like throwing off everything that does not have to do with preserving life. They stripped the boat. They threw all the cargo overboard. There goes all that money. And then they stripped everything else. You're going to have one outfit until this thing is over. I'm sorry, madam. Because there were passengers on the boat as well. I mean, this is, this is like super desperate, crazy, we're going to die. Look at 20. And I just love how it gets better and better, doesn't it? Because you know darkness just makes all things better, right? When you can't see, what a joy, right? Somebody probably prayed that. This is terrible, Lord. Why don't you just make it dark? Okay, you know? Look at that. When neither sun nor stars appeared for many days and no small tempest lay on us, 
all our hope of being saved was at last abandoned. Neither sun nor stars appeared for many days, which made navigation impossible. How do you think they navigated these boats back in these days? They used the stars at night. They used the sun during the day. You know, that's how you knew where you were going. And when it's dark 24-7, and I don't know if it was like pitch dark, but it was probably overcast and dark. I mean, if you couldn't see the sky, you couldn't navigate. They could not navigate. Not to mention that in the midst of this dreadful darkness, they continued to be hammered by tempest after tempest after tempest, right? Just blasted. MacArthur wrote, you just take a quick note too, that the fact that they, it was dark and they couldn't, see the, they couldn't see the sun or the stars for many days goes to show that they were in that season when it was overcast and all of that, the worst possible time to be at sea which is further proving Paul's point back at Crete. We shouldn't go. It's too dangerous, right? And they didn't listen to him. And now it is dark, and you can't see, and you can't navigate. If you can't navigate, you are toast. MacArthur wrote, Only those who have been in a violent storm at sea can fully appreciate the terror the passengers and crews must have felt here. The towering white-capped seas, the roaring of the wind, the violent rocking of the ship, as first the bow, then the stern rose high in the air, only to plunge quickly down again. The constant motion producing seasickness and making it difficult to stand, let alone walk. The wind-driven salt spray stinging and blinding those who were on deck. They're the ones trying to guide the ship, trying to keep it afloat. And worst of all, the looming reality of an awful death by drowning. All those factors combined would unnerve even the most experienced sailor. What Luke wants us to realize here is that this is, this is it. That these people are on the precipice of death. That it's just, there's no, we've thrown everything out. We've done everything we can. We took all the precautionary me measures. We added a couple. We made up a couple for crying out loud. Just take notice of that last word in that verse. What does it say? Uh, abandoned. You know what that means in the Greek? Complete cessation. Done. The crew and passengers literally gave up. The last thing to be thrown over the side of the ship was hope. They threw everything else, and now they threw hope right off the side. We're done. There's nothing more that can be done. We're doomed. There's no hope for rescue. There's no hope for survival. There's no hope that we will make it to our destination. We're, we're talking absolute peril. We're talking absolute despair. The crew, the passengers, were waiting to die. That's it. They were just waiting to have life snuffed out. <clears throat> we experience a lot of storms in life, don't we? Death in the family, loss of employment, sickness, cancer, betrayal, persecution, and so on. These things can be incredibly devastating, even debilitating. 
They not only threaten our hope, but sometimes rob us of it. They can bring us to the point of absolute despair, to where we do not value life, others, or anything else. That's how the people on this ship felt. Done. They were done. But God wasn't done. When everyone on the ship had given up, including Luke and Aristarchus, ah, Paul, right? Everyone, somebody on the ship had hope. Somebody on the ship had peace. Somebody on the ship was about to take the lead. And that somebody was God's servant, the Apostle Paul. God was about to use him to flip the script. Commentators say that Paul may have been at this time when everyone was giving up and throwing hope off the side and just making their funeral arrangements. Commentators say that Paul may have been downstairs asleep. Ha! Sound familiar? You remember what happened on that little fishing boat with the 12 disciples and Jesus? When that little northeastern came down off the hills of Gilead, slammed onto the Sea of Galilee and slammed against that boat, and those disciples were freaking out and panicking and we're going to die, and Jesus was asleep downstairs on a cushion. You remember how they woke him up and he, and he rebuked them, oh, ye of little faith, but then he calmed the storm and restored their hope. You can see that over in Mark 4. 35 to 41, amazing story. Let me tell you what's really amazing. What's really amazing is how the Apostle Paul was literally, literally able to share in so many of the Lord's sufferings and experiences. Persecution, beatings, trial, jail, stormy seas. Now look at how Paul, look at how God, God's the hero here, but look at how God used Paul to intervene in verse 21. This is off the chain. It says, since they had been without food for a long time, Paul stood up among them and said, men, you should have listened to me and not have set sail from Crete and incurred this injury and loss. Talk about Debbie Downer. Now, now, just notice here, 21 there, Luke put in this little detail about not eating here for a reason. He is illustrating something. He is illustrating the impact that hopelessness had on these people. Those who suffer hopelessness and despair eat very little, if anything at all, don't they? Hopelessness kills the appetite. Despair kills the appetite. Depression kills the appetite. I know this to be a fact because I suffered through 10 years of deep depression and anxiety. Food for 10 years was repulsive. I ate enough to survive. I looked like I could have been a cast member on Schindler's List. I weighed a buck two wet. All through my 20s. I know what it's like. Some of you do. People on this ship couldn't eat because they were hopeless and heartsick. Proverbs 13, 12, hope deferred makes the heart sick. Not to mention that they were probably seasick as well, right? 
Now, put, Paul took notice of what was happening. He, he noticed that they hadn't even eaten. What did he do? He took notice. He stood up. He took the lead. And he began to admonish them. At first, it looks like he was being a little bit of a smart aleck and rubbing their dumb decision to leave Crete in their face. But that's not at all what was happening here. I read it first and I said, that's messed up. It's true. It's like, you know, don't tell us you told us so. You know, I won't. I told you so. That's not what he was doing. He was trying to establish his competence as someone who has experience as a traveler. He had been in shipwrecks three other times. 2 Corinthians 11.25. This was about to be his fourth shipwreck. This guy had more experience at sea with shipwrecks in these situations than anyone else on the boat. And he's simply saying, you should have listened to me because I know what the heck I'm talking about. Paul's shipwrecks reminds me of that guy who kept getting struck by lightning on the great outdoors. You seen that movie? Remember him, that guy, every time he went outside during the storm? Every time Paul got on the boat, he got shipwrecked. You don't go sailing with Paul. Right? This was about to become his fourth. When he warned them not to proceed in verse 10, he was speaking from experience, but they didn't listen to him, and look what happened. In a way, Paul was saying, I told you this would happen. Will you listen to me and trust me now? He's not rubbing it in their face. He's trying to earn their trust. Look, you threw hope over the side. I'm here to help. Trust me at this point. And then he encouraged them with a promise. Look at 22. Yet now I urge you to take heart, for there will be no loss of life among you, but only of the ship. I'm sure that everyone on the boat was thrilled except for the owner of the boat. Right? What do you mean? You're a dumb idiot. You're about to die. I don't care. I want to die with my boat. Captains, go down. Paul told them to take heart because everyone was going to survive, and then only the ship would be lost. This is an incredible statement. Where, where's this guy coming from? You weren't even up here a minute ago. There had to be a few skeptics there whispering, sounded real good, buddy. Someone's been getting into Grandpa's old cough medicine again. Why don't you go back downstairs and continue your nap? Right? There's always a skeptic in there. There's always a doubting Thomas. And it's usually you and I. Where the heck's this guy coming from? Are you nuts? Do you not see what's going on around us? Your, your Nikes are buried in two feet of water, dude. We're going down. What proof did Paul provide to validate this claim? Look at verses 23 to 24. For this very night there stood before me an angel of the God to whom I belong and whom I worship. And he said, and this is what the angel said, Do not be afraid, Paul. You must stand before Caesar. And behold, God has granted you all those who sail with you. Paul told them about a vision he had that very night. Again, he was sleeping during this whole thing. <laughs> what? And you have to... You have to, yes, you have to notice that and realize that he was downstairs sleeping because whenever Paul got a vision, it was when he was asleep. They, these were dreams that he got. And in the vision, an angel of God came to him with a message from God, and it contains one exhortation and two promises. The exhortation, do not be afraid, Paul. What does that mean? That means there's evidence that Paul himself had some fear. 
Luke wants us to know that Paul was not Jesus, that Paul was not perfect, that Paul struggled with fear at times. This is why angels came to him. This is why the Lord Jesus came to him several times and admonished him, take courage. He had some fear, but it wasn't enough to keep him up and to be chewing his nails off and throwing hope off the side. Paul was not, Luke wants us to know, he was not Superman. There was kryptonite everywhere. Paul had received other exhortations like this. Elsewhere in Acts, in 18, chapter 18, verse 19, the Lord Jesus appeared to him in a dream when he was in Corinth and said, do not be afraid. And then in 2311, the Lord Jesus appeared to him while he was in jail at Jerusalem and said, take courage, same thing, do not be afraid. That's the exhortation. Paul, fear not. Man, that's just what the doctor ordered at that moment, huh? Now the first promise, and this is really a continuation of a promise that had already been made, a reiteration of it. First promise, you must stand before Caesar. This was a reminder of a past promise. The Lord Jesus had promised Paul that he, uh, promised Paul that he would preach the gospel in Rome, chapter 23, verse 11. God was making sure through this angel, through this message, through the angel, that Paul knew and understood that the plan was still intact. Yeah, you're in a storm, but you're going to preach before Caesar. Pretty awesome, isn't it? What a killer promise. God was making sure that he knew and understood that the plan was intact. This reminds me of a, an old George Whitfield quote. It's in your bulletins. People in Europe hated him because he preached the sovereignty of God and salvation. He preached the Bible. The Wesleys, John and his brother Charles, played a huge part in this hatred against him. They spewed lies about him. They twisted his doctrine and his preaching while he was away in America on a crusade. They slandered him. And when he returned to England, he was a champion in England of the gospel. Never before had England ever seen somebody like this guy. At times he had 60,000 people before him while he was preaching the gospel. God was saving people in multitudes during this ministry. And yet when he returned after a tour in America, he was despised and hated because of what the Wesleys did. After a failed assassination attempt on his life, Someone tried to kill him while he was in bed. Now that's just low. Right? Hey! You know? After someone tried to kill him while he was in bed, he said this about God's sovereign protection. We are immortal until our work on earth is done. Brilliant. He was correct. We will not taste death and be brought to glory until our work on earth is done. God sovereignly protects us until we are finished. It doesn't mean that we won't experience trouble or setbacks. Paul was in a storm. We experience storms. But it does mean that we cannot die prematurely before our work here is complete. Nothing will stop you from doing that because nothing can stay or thwart the sovereign hand of God. This truth is illustrated perfectly in our text. 
It's the most magnificent truth of this simple traveling narrative. Paul was on the worst cruise ship ever, was he not? It wasn't the love boat, it was the love stinks boat. Yeah, yeah, right? This was a horrible trip. The storm blasted them. We look, read in the next chapter, for 14 days straight, hammered, throwing everything off the side. I mean, he was near death. He was tasting death. The crew was tasting death. And yet he was going to survive. Why? Because he wasn't finished with his work. He had to preach the gospel in Rome. That is what God told Paul through the angel. Second promise, and behold, God has granted you all those who sail with you. God sent word through the angel that he was guaranteeing the safety of everyone on board, that everyone on board would survive. I call this a collateral blessing. If Paul had not been there, these people, with the exception of maybe Luke and Aristarchus, would have drowned. They would have been lost at sea. I don't doubt that a bit. MacArthur wrote this. He said, unbelievers have no idea how much they owe in the mercy of God to the presence of righteous men among them. God actually preserves the lives of others around you because of you. We're salt and light. Salt preserves Second promise is nobody's going to be lost. Why? Because you have to go preach to Caesar. You think any of these people realized how they were being blessed through this righteous man? Probably not. Let's move to our last verse, verses 25 through 26. Here, here's what he says. He says, so take heart, men, for I have faith in God that it will be exactly as I've been told. But we must run aground on some Paul again commanded them to take heart. Take heart can be translated as cheer up. You have no hope. You have nothing left. You haven't even eaten. Cheer up. Why did he say this? Because he believed that God's word would come true. The people would be saved, but the ship would be lost. He declared this with confidence because he knew from personal experience that God is completely reliable. God had a perfect track record with Paul, you might say. He always delivered on his promises 100% of the time. He included another prophetic detail in verse 26. We must run aground on some island. What's he doing here? He's showing them how it's going to go down. He doesn't know the name of the island. How do I know we're not going to be lost at sea or die out here and drown? Because we're going to hit an island. For the anxious passengers on board, this had to come as a major relief because running aground on an island is far better than being distressed on the open seas, right? It's better to be on an island. It's better to be on land. Closing. Two ginormous, massive, huge takeaways from this passage, from this simple narrative. It's just a, it's just a, Movement narrative, going from point A to point B. But there's two massive things to take away from it. First, 
God is completely reliable. When storms arise and darkness falls and our hope is sinking, God comes to us, usually in and through his word, and he reminds us of his promises, doesn't he? He points to his track record and says, do not be afraid, I got this. If you are in the midst of a storm, be encouraged by this text. God has made it clear that in the midst of these difficult circumstances, he is here, he is in control, and he is working out his plan for you. Somehow what you're going through is a part of that plan. And he wants you because of this, because of his track record, because he's reliable, because of his promises in Scripture, because these things always come to pass just as he predicts and says. He wants you to trust him. He wants you to know that he is completely reliable. Second, God is our sovereign protector. Life is filled with difficulty and danger, isn't it? But we must remember that God sovereignly protects us. No matter what happens in life, we will live out all the days God planned for us, and we will finish all the work he assigned to us. We are immortal until our work on earth is done. This assurance produces confidence, courage, and constancy. Paul believed it. Paul believed in the sovereign protection of God's own hand. He believed it. And that's why he was able to serve God faithfully and fearlessly and sleep on a ship during a hurricane. There are people in this room who can testify to the truth of this scripture. There's one right there. Cancer came over your body. And you said, God is only going to remove me from this earth when his work here for me is done. So if the cancer takes me out, then obviously my work here is done. If it doesn't, then I have more work to do. And you don't have cancer anymore. Cancer threatened your life. It made it miserable for a season. But because you had more work to do, it could not kill you. You need to look at life this way. You need to have this assurance of God's sovereign protection. Why else could Paul say to Timothy, God has not given us a spirit of timidity, cowardice, because of God's sovereign protection. He has not given us a wimpy spirit where we cower at everything in life. He has assured us that he will bring to completion all that he intends for us and that we will not breathe our last breath until our work here is finished. It doesn't matter what happens. It doesn't matter about car crashes, cancer. It doesn't matter. And so we don't have to live in fear of our circumstances or our situations or the things that we experience. And we can know and rest assured that if something like that does bring our life to an end, God is finished with us here, and it's time to move us on to stage two, which is the best. Amen? I can't even get an amen in this room. That's what's been illustrated in the text. Do you believe it? If you believe these truths about his 
about how his reliability, and you trust him, he's reliable. You trust in his reliability. You trust in his person and reliability and his work and his prophecy and his answering of those things. If you believe in that and you believe he sovereignly protects you and will carry you all the way to the very end, you will live differently. You will live with confidence You will live with courage. You will live with constancy, meaning you'll continue to press on day in and day out.